Chapter 11 Arenas of Conflict Sooner or later the churches must awaken to the fact that a radical paganization has occurred somewhere in the history of the faith. The denial of the messianic kingdom and the substitution of a reward in heaven at death point unmistakably to the influence of Greek philosophy in conflict with the Hebrew doctrine of the future. The situation will remain confused as long as the tensions created by competing thought worlds continue unresolved. At present, so-called orthodoxy battles hard to defend its traditional positions. Apparently the prospect of having to renounce some of its cherished dogmas is too unsettling. Yet while this attitude prevails, restoration and unity are obstructed. Admissions about the adverse effects of philosophy on the faith sometimes appear in footnotes in learned articles. They deserve to be made into headlines as a warning about the distortion which is bound to occur when an alien system is read into the Bible. Commenting on the popular use of Paul's phrase, absent from the body and present with the Lord, as proof that Paul thought that, quote, souls go to heaven at death to enjoy the so-called intermediate state, E.E. E. Ellis says, in view of the influence of Greek philosophy from a very early period, one would expect the exegesis to take this direction. That's cited by J.W. McCant in an article, Competing Pauline Eschatologies. But why is it right that from the time of Clement of Alexandria and Tertullian until now, Paul should have been misused to support popular but unbiblical ideas about death and the afterlife? Standard authorities on the history of the development of Christianity leave us in no doubt about the break which has occurred with the original faith. They seem less enthusiastic about calling for a return to the, quote, faith once and for all delivered to the saints, Jude 3, a phrase which hardly suggests that the apostles would have been happy with a wholesale sellout or any accommodation to Greek or Roman theology. Protestantism claims that the Bible alone is the normative standard for its beliefs and practices, and the Articles of the Church of England warn that church councils may have gone astray. If this is the case, Protestants should be eager to show that their version of the faith really represents the authentic voice of Jesus. But have they reckoned with those changes that came over the faith soon after New Testament times? The Harmful Influence of Philosophy A learned professor of the history of Christianity writing towards the early part of this century, as to say the 20th century, when I was writing this, described the switch of theological ideas which occurred when the Hebrew biblical basis of Christianity was surrendered and replaced by a philosophically orientated system such telling expert opinion 
encountered in the course of my reading provides an eloquent answer to my initial question about why Christianity as taught in church seemed so different from the atmosphere created by the New Testament. I found the following statement immensely revealing. Like all concepts, the meaning of religious terms is changed with a changing experience and a changing worldview. Transplanted into the Greek worldview, inevitably the Christian teaching was modified, indeed transformed. Questions which had never been asked came into the foreground and the Jewish presuppositions tended to disappear. Especially were the messianic hopes forgotten or transferred to a transcendent sphere beyond death. When the empire became supposedly Christian in the 4th century, the notion of a kingdom of Christ on earth to be introduced by a great struggle all but disappeared, remaining only as the faith of obscure groups. Immortality, the philosophical conception, took the place of the resurrection of the body. Nevertheless, the latter continues because of its presence in the primary sources, but it is no longer a determining factor since its presupposition, the messianic kingdom on earth, has been obscured. As thus the background is changed from Jewish to Greek, so are the fundamental religious conceptions. We have thus a peculiar combination. The religious doctrines of the Bible run through the forms of an alien philosophy. That quotation is from G.W. Knox in the article on Christianity in the Encyclopedia Britannica, the 11th edition. If this is so, it would be hard to imagine a more convincing indictment of our failure to guard the treasure of the faith as Paul commanded. How can, quote, messianic hopes be forgotten when these were the pulsating heart of the gospel of Jesus? How can the faith be, quote, transformed without a loss of original identity? Why is it in any way acceptable to mix Greek philosophy with divine revelation and still pretend that no damage has been done? How indeed can the Bible be claimed as the source book of Protestant faith when in fact we have departed from the messianic framework in which its whole message is set? It seems to us unacceptable that the Bible has been married to an alien philosophy. It would appear that the professor who delivered a lecture on, quote, Christianity and humanism in 1938 uttered a much-needed warning when he said, and I quote, in its encounter with Greek philosophy, Christianity became theology. That was the fall of Christianity. A quotation was from Robert Friedman in his book, The Theology of Anabaptism, written in 1973. If we take our cue from Floyd Filson's observation 
about the incompatibility of the Hebrew mindset with alien cultures, we would expect a large-scale alarm at the intrusion of foreign ideas into the faith of Jesus. I quote, The primary kinship of the New Testament is not with the Gentile environment, but rather with the Jewish heritage and environment. We are often led by our traditional creeds and theology to think in terms of Gentile and especially Greek concepts. We know that not later than the second century there began the systematic effort of the apologists to show that the Christian faith perfected the best in Greek philosophy. A careful study of the New Testament must block any trend to regard the New Testament as a group of documents expressive of the Gentile mind. This book's kinship is primarily and overwhelmingly with Judaism and the Old Testament. The New Testament speaks always of disapproval and usually with blunt denunciation of Gentile cults and philosophies. It argues essentially with the Jewish indictment of the pagan world. That's from Floyd Filson's book, The New Testament Against Its Environment, written in 1950. Quote, traditional creeds teach us to think in terms of Gentile and especially Greek terms. And the New Testament speaks always of disapproval and usually with blunt denunciation of Gentile cults and philosophies. Traditional Christianity appears to be indicted by its own scholarly insights. A complete review of doctrine and a restoration of Jesus' own Hebrew faith would seem to be the only course available for a religion claiming to reverence and follow the Messiah. The old question, quote, was Jesus a Christian, appears to need a negative answer if we are asking whether Jesus would have belonged to the, quote, transformed Christianity, which took root in Greek soil in the second century and which Orthodox churches have inherited. Jesus, however, is the model for Christians. Hence our need to follow him and his teachings closely. It seems strange to speak of, quote, the lordship of Jesus and then to disregard his authoritative kingdom message or any of his teachings in favor of our own ideas and traditions. Christians seem to forget that Jesus is our rabbi and prophet as well as our savior. The Messiah came to, quote, give us an understanding so that we can know God. That's a quotation from 1 John 5, verse 20. How can he teach us while we mix his teachings with, quote, received opinions on central Christian issues? Quotations from the world of scholarly comment on the development of religion can be multiplied. Another professor of the history of early Christianity seems quite certain 
that the faith has not come down to us unscathed. I quote, Although the acute form of the secularization of Christianity in Gnosticism was rejected, yet the Church continued to lose more and more its primitive character and to be conformed to its environment in the Greco-Roman culture. The process was advanced by the apologists, those were the spokesmen for the faith in the second century, and it seemed to suffer a check in the influence of Irenaeus, but was stimulated in the Alexandrian school of theology. This development brought about the definitive transformation of the rule of faith into the compendium of a Greek philosophical system. We cannot assume that the faith as delivered to the saints was adequately and finally expressed in these Greco-Roman intellectual forms. That the faith was expressed in ecclesiastical dogma always without obscuration or distortion cannot be maintained. That the Christian organism could not escape being affected by and adapting itself to its Greco-Roman environment must be conceded that this action and reaction were not only necessary, but a condition of progress may be conjectured. This does not, however, exclude the frank recognition of the fact that there were characteristics of the Greek speculative genius and the practical Roman ethos not altogether harmonious with the distinctive character of the gospel. So, there was indeed perversion amidst the progress in the subsequent development. The salt in seasoning did lose some of its savor. Greek metaphysic and law misrepresented as well as expressed the gospel. That's from A.E. Garvey's article on Christianity in the Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics, 1910. The chief area of conflict is, as we have suggested, in eschatology, the doctrine of things to come. It is the kingdom of God of the future which commentators so often seem to ignore. There is something unappealing about the idea that man on his own is not going to achieve peace on earth. It will take a divine intervention to restore harmony. Is there also a deep-seated anti-Semitic tendency in Christian commentary which works to reject the Jewish biblical messianism of Jesus? A disturbance of the Bible's teaching about the future was not a minor ripple over matters of little consequence, since the gospel itself is about the kingdom, and the kingdom lies in the future, the substance of Christian teaching was endangered. De-Judaizing Jesus. While the writings of the apostles concentrate on the development of the church 
as the leaders in training of the coming messianic era, there is no evidence that New Testament Christians had abandoned the, quote, Jewish picture of the Messiah as coming governor of a renewed world order. How could they, when the scriptures which Jesus endorsed had painted such a vivid picture of the Messiah's future intervention in world affairs. Based on the biblical hope, which Jesus never discounted, the Jews pray three times daily that, quote, speedily the world will be perfected under the kingdom of the Almighty. Let all the inhabitants of the world perceive and know that to you every knee must bow, every tongue must swear, and let them all accept the yoke of your kingdom. That's from the Alenu prayer cited by Klausner in his book, The Messianic Idea in Israel. On solemn occasions from the liturgy known as the 18 prayers, Jews ask God, Quote, Give then glory, O Lord, to your people, joy to your land, the land of Palestine that is, gladness to your city Jerusalem, a flourishing horn to David, your servant, and a clear shining light to the son of Jesse, your Messiah. This is precisely the hope of both testaments. The quote, clear shining light is taken from the messianic prophecy of 2 Samuel 23 verse 4 and the horn of David reflects Psalms 89 verse 17 and Psalm 132 verse 17 which reappear in Luke 1 verse 69 in a Christian setting. Matthew presents Jesus as, quote, a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Matthew 2, verse 6. The Hebrew Bible had said precisely the same about King David. I quote, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will be a ruler over Israel. 2 Samuel 5, verse 2. There could be no stronger evidence for the hope that Jesus must be installed as king of the regathered nation. In the style characteristic also of Jesus, Jews do not minimize the negative aspect of the coming of the kingdom. Quote, May all wickedness be wholly consumed like smoke when you make the dominion of arrogance pass away from the whole earth. That again is cited from Klausner's book, The Messianic Idea in Israel. The prayer which Jesus conferred on his followers for all time is woven from the same messianic cloth as these prayers of Judaism. Jesus' hope is Jewish to the core. Among the prayers of the synagogues which Jesus attended, it is most likely that he would have heard the following petition for the coming kingdom. I quote, 
magnified and sanctified be his great name in the world which he has created according to his will. May he establish his kingdom during your life and during your days and during the life of all the house of Israel, even speedily and at a near time, say, Amen. Jesus' model prayer, quote, Sanctified be your name, may your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth, Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10, shows Jesus to be a true child of biblical Judaism at its best. With his own people, Jesus longed for the establishment of justice on earth. Such had been the passionate expectation of the prophets of Israel. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and before his elders he will manifest his glory. Behold, a king will reign righteously, and princes will rule justly, and the work of righteousness will be peace. My servant will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice on earth. Say to Zion, your God reigns. And a quotation from Isaiah 24, verses 21 to 23, Isaiah 32, verse 1 and 17, and Isaiah 42, verses 1 and 4, and Isaiah 52, verse 7. Jewish commentary appropriately explained the hope of God reigning as the revelation of the kingdom of God. Such is the hope of Judaism as it is also of the biblical Christianity inspired by the master teacher himself, whose gospel was centered upon a single idea, the realization of the kingdom of God upon the earth. The New Testament is a commentary on Jesus' master concept. The Christian gospel is the gospel about the kingdom, a point of reference for all the blessings of faith in Jesus as the Christ. All this would be clear to the church-going public were it not for a counter-tradition which maintained the name of Jesus but persistently stripped his message of its unwanted political and apocalyptic elements. Controversy over the future. A most sensitive battlefield is centered around those few passages of the New Testament which, taken alone and without reference to their wider context, stand the best chance of being forced into line with the Greek thinking which has buried the message of the Hebrew prophets. Paul never comforted the bereaved, as we tend to do. 
with the assurance that the dead were really alive with Christ in heaven. Our description of death as, quote, passing on, or of the dead as having, quote, gone home, betray the paganism which has entered the faith. The celebrated gospel hymn, we are going, we are going to a home beyond the skies where the fields are robed in beauty and the sunlight never dies. Words from the hymn by Fanny Crosby. Those words are not in harmony with the New Testament cry for the coming of Jesus to raise the dead. For Paul and the other apostles, and for Jesus, the dead have gone to Hades to rest. They are simply dead, awaiting the resurrection of the last day. The fact of a future resurrection is demanded by God's being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The patriarchs are now dead. They must therefore rise in the resurrection in order to take their places in the coming kingdom. In agreement with their predecessors of the Old Testament, the early Christians described the dead as having joined their fathers in the sleep of death. See, for example, Genesis 15, verse 15, Genesis 25, verse 8, Genesis 47, verse 30, and Deuteronomy 31, verse 16, in addition to 50 texts in 1 Kings all the way through 2 Chronicles, in which kings are said to sleep with their fathers. See also Psalm 6, verse 5, Psalm 30, verse 9, Psalm 115, verse 17, Psalm 146, verse 3 and 4, and Job 14, verse 12, Ecclesiastes 9, verse 5, and Isaiah 26, verse 19, Daniel 12, verse 2, and John 5, verses 28 and 29, John 11, verse 11, 14 and 43. Acts 2, verses 29 and 34 show that David was still dead and buried after the resurrection of Jesus. Like everyone else, David, quote, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. That's Acts 13, verse 36. Jesus is coming back to raise, literally to wake up, those who are asleep in death. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 10, and 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. All of the fallen asleep saints of the Old Testament times and of the current era, all of these must remain asleep in the dust until they awake in the future resurrection. Again, Paul insists that the dead have perished unless there is to be a resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 18. This is patently not true. 
if in reality their souls have survived in another world. The whole matter is so very simple. Once the Greek dualism of body and separable conscious soul is erased from the mind. For while it is true that a man commits his spirit himself as a vital thinking creature to God at death, it is equally clear that the man himself falls into unconsciousness. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, fell asleep in death after committing himself to God. You'll find that in Acts chapter 7, verses 59 and 60. Stephen, in the next moment of consciousness, will awake in the resurrection at the coming of Christ to earth. The notion of a surviving conscious spirit deprived of a body belongs in Scripture to the world of evil spirits, never to man. In a handful of passages only, Scripture seems to speak of an immediate presence with Christ at death. When Paul contemplates the sleep of death for himself, he naturally envisages being immediately, quote, at home with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, or, quote, with the Lord, Philippians 1, 23. Compare with that 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17. This is simply because in sleep, there is no awareness whatever of the passage of time. In that sense, to fall asleep in death is to wake up in the future resurrection, even though millennia may elapse before the dead are called forth from their graves. It is not that the dead have passed out of time. They are simply not conscious of it. With little concern for the weight of scriptural evidence, the reply of Jesus to the thief on the cross is cited as proof positive that death really means an immediate transfer to a conscious existence in heaven. Is that really what Luke intends us to understand? In other passages, Luke records that Jesus taught his followers that they would be rewarded not at death, but, quote, at the resurrection of the just. You find that in Luke 14, verse 14, or in the age to come, Luke 18, verse 30. Jesus spoke of, quote, those who are accounted worthy of attaining to that well-known future age and the resurrection of the dead, Luke 20, verse 35. See also Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, and Matthew chapter 25, verse 19 and 20. The hopes of the faithful are constantly directed towards the future kingdom of God for which they are waiting even after Jesus' resurrection. You'll find that in Luke chapter 23, verse 51. It would be hard to imagine a more erratic departure from this simple scheme suddenly to teach that, after all, souls go to heaven the moment they die. The Thief on the Cross There is no need to read the words of Jesus to the thief 
in a way which makes Jesus contradict everything else the Bible says about life after death. The thief had asked to be remembered in the future when Jesus would return to inaugurate his kingdom. Jesus more than satisfies the thief's request. He assures him, even on that day, as they languish on the cross, that the thief will indeed be with Jesus in the future paradise of the kingdom. I quote, Truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Altering the punctuation, which is no part of the authoritative text, clearly settles the issue for us and clears up the difficulty. Leaving the punctuation as it is creates a considerable confusion for the following reasons. Luke had already recorded Jesus as saying that he would not rise from death until the third day. Luke 18 verse 33. How then could he be alive with the Father on the day of his death? I note that E. E. Ellis has recorded that, quote, a few reasonable early manuscripts place the comma after the word today and thus continue the parousia reference of verse 42. That's from the New Century Bible Commentary on Luke. Ellis does not favor placing the comma after today, but in our opinion, for insufficient reasons. Paradise is evidently parallel to the future kingdom of God in which the thief hopes to be at Jesus' return. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. Matthew 12 verse 40 reports Jesus as saying that he would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, not with the Father in paradise. Three days after Jesus' crucifixion, on the following Sunday, Jesus himself stated that he had not yet ascended to the Father. John 20 verse 17. It seems incoherent, therefore, that Jesus was alive and present with the Father the day he died. The prophecy of Psalm 16 Verses 8 to 11, which Peter quoted in order to affirm the resurrection of Jesus, Acts 2, verses 27 to 31, declared that God, quote, would not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to see corruption. Clearly, Jesus was to be rescued from Hades by resurrection. This fits exactly with Matthew 28 verses 5 and 6, where the angel informs those who gathered at the sepulcher that, quote, he is not here because he has risen. Jesus, on this evidence, left the tomb on the third day. He did not return from paradise in heaven. He had not been there. These considerations fully justify the change of punctuation which we suggest. Quote, truly I say to you today, gives solemn emphasis to the words of Christ. A parallel form of speech is found in Acts when Paul says, I solemnly witness to you 
this very day. You'll find that in Acts 20, verse 26. And see also the same phrase in Deuteronomy 30, verse 16, 18, and 19. A German translation of the Bible by Wilhelm Michaelis renders the reply of Jesus to the thief as follows. Quote, Truly I give you my assurance today, you will one day be with me in paradise. The author adds in a note, quote, Jesus does not wait until the last day, but promises the thief, even now, the word today should probably be attached to the first part of the sentence, even now, the thief's request will be granted. The Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics is also sensitive to the problem when it says, Paradise, as used in Luke 23, verse 43, is evidently not heaven. John 20, verse 17, and Acts 3, 21. Paul himself shrank in horror from disembodiment, as any Hebrew would. Throughout the whole New Testament, there's not a single reference to Christians surviving as spirits deprived of their bodies, much less of their having passed into the heavens. I note that the New Testament speaks of Jesus only as having gone to heaven. Acts 1 verse 11, Acts 3 verse 21, Hebrews 9 verse 24, and 1 Peter 3 verse 22. For that reason, the favorite text absent from the body and present with the Lord, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, ought no longer to be read through Greek spectacles as if Paul meant, quote, at home as a disembodied spirit. Throughout his writings, Paul knows of only one homecoming. What he longed for was the new body and the life to be gained through resurrection and entrance into the kingdom of God. You'll find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 to 55. As for the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, it says nothing of a disembodied existence. Its characters obviously have bodies, and Lazarus, whom the rich man encourages to go back to the living, does so as one who rises from the dead. You find that in Luke 16, verse 31. Lazarus is the immediate subject of the discussion from verses 27 to 31. The scene of the story in the parable of Lazarus, whose design is not to lay out precisely a program for the future, but is set not in an intermediate realm of the dead, but at the resurrection when, as so many Bible passages say, the good and the evil will be assigned their different destinies. I note that the mention of Hades as a place of torment is exceptional in the Bible. In Jewish literature, however, Hades and Gehenna, which is hellfire, are sometimes wrongly used interchangeably. In that future time, the patriarchs will sit down 
at the Messianic banquet. Luke chapter 13, verses 28 and 29, and Matthew 8, verse 11. The plan for resurrection is clearly laid out in numerous passages from both Testaments, notably in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, especially 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, as an essential part of the divine message. Christians are to be granted immortality when Christ returns and not a moment earlier. The millennium. Another notorious battleground is the millennial vision of Revelation 20. Bible students prove themselves to be the fiercest opponents of the Old Testament prophets when they deny the reality of the coming messianic kingdom, which is the great theme of the biblical seers. Traditional teaching has so successfully put about the notion that Jesus came to remove the scene of the prophet's vision to another realm far from this earth. Many devoted students of scripture are thus no longer persuaded that the hope for an earth filled with the knowledge of God and for Messiah enthroned as king are to be taken as was intended as a sublime prediction of the destiny of our world. The future rule of the Messiah and all his saints is beautifully portrayed in the Revelation in a passage immediately subsequent to the account describing the arrival of the King Messiah in power. Revelation 19, verses 19 forwards, as far as Revelation 20, verse 3. The period of the divine reign follows the arrest and incarceration of Satan so that he can no longer deceive the nations. Revelation 20, verse 3. A more glorious release from the tyranny of satanic deception cannot be imagined. This passage contains, surely, the grand climax to the entire biblical anticipation of the restoration of divine rule on earth. To refer it to the present chaotic state of our world is one of the bizarrest attempts to avoid biblical messianism. The efforts which have been made to obscure the future millennial kingdom on earth are amongst the sorriest in the history of interpreting the Bible. The confusion of heaven with earth is so deeply ingrained that it has become almost impossible for Gentile-oriented churchgoers to read the words of John in sympathy with his thoroughly messianic and apocalyptic perspective. The intensity of the struggle over the meaning of Revelation 20 is best illustrated by citing the words of the compiler of a well-known Bible commentary. He charges Augustine and his many followers in the Roman Catholic and Protestant evangelical world with, quote, dishonest trifling, playing with terms. That quotation is from Peake's commentary on the Bible, written in 1919. 
That accusation is leveled at people who twist Revelation 20 when they suggest that the reign of Jesus and the saints seen by John in vision in Revelation 20 has been in progress ever since the resurrection of Jesus. This would mean that Satan has already been bound, quote, so that he can no longer deceive the nations. Revelation 20, verse 3. That men can be persuaded to believe that points only to the effectiveness of the satanic deception. It should be perfectly clear that the period of time, the thousand-year reign of Christ and the saints, in which Satan's international deception ceases, must lie in the future. The millennial question is commonly believed to be only a peripheral matter in our understanding of the New Testament, a kind of optional extra for hair-splitting Bible enthusiasts to argue over. It is frequently shuffled off into the corner as a question unrelated to the good news of salvation and of concern only to students of prophecy. This is very far from being the New Testament point of view. The very terms millennium and millennial hide the fact that the passage in Revelation 20 describing the thousand-year, that's to say, millennial reign of Christ and the saints, contains essential information by revelation from God through Jesus Christ, as we read in Revelation 1, verse 1 and 2. Essential information about the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is the heart of the Christian gospel message, the burden of Jesus' whole mission. Luke 4, verse 43. The student of Scripture must solve a rather simple problem. When is this rule of Christ and the saints, described in Revelation, when is this to take place? The millennial text reads as follows. I quote, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, and they came to life and began to reign with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who takes part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. That's a quotation from Revelation chapter 20. Verses 4 to 6. Two mutually exclusive views of this passage have been held. So called amillennialism, originating in the theology of Augustine in the 5th century AD and supported later by the reformers Luther and Calvin, denies that the millennial passage refers to a future 
reign of Christ and his saints. On the other hand, premillennialism, which was the orthodox view of leading Christians of the second and third centuries, maintains that the reign described in our passage will begin at the second coming of Christ. The technical jargon must not be allowed to conceal the fact that this is a dispute about the kingdom of God and its place in the divine plan. The difference of opinion should therefore be settled in order that the gospel of the kingdom of God can be presented clearly. A fair way to resolve the question is by comparing it with the other biblical passages bearing on the resurrection and the joint reign of Christ and the saints, and then examining the text of Revelation 20 in its own context in Revelation. Where does this reign fit into the biblical scheme? An obvious parallel is found in Daniel chapter 7, a biblical blueprint for the framework of New Testament teaching. I quote, The Son of Man, that's to say the supreme human being who Jesus claimed to be, came to the Ancient of Days, the Father, and there was given to him dominion and glory and a kingdom such that all people, nations and languages should serve him, his dominion, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one which shall not be destroyed. The time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Compare with that, judgment was given to them as we read in Revelation 20 verse 4. And this quotation is from Daniel 7 verse 13, 14 and 22 and see also verses 18 and verse 27. What then is, quote, that time when the saints take possession of their inheritance of the kingdom? The kingdom of God is evidently a joint reign of the Son of Man and the saints. Does Scripture see this as a present fact or a hope for the future? Around this question, a vast amount of discussion has centered. Daniel 2 verse 44 states that the kingdom supersedes the kingdoms of the present age by destroying and replacing them. In the days of these kings, that is rulers represented by the great image, the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. The same event is expanded in Daniel 7, verse 27. I quote, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. These are verses expressive of the messianism with which Jesus was so well acquainted, 
Jesus' reliance on the book of Daniel is well known. Portrayed in these passages is a world revolution by which a new world government, presided over by the Son of Man and the saints, takes the place of present empires. It should not be difficult to understand that the nations and dominions of our present world are very far from being in subjection to Christ and the Church. This fact alone is proof that the kingdom is dependent on the return of Jesus to establish it. Thy kingdom come is a petition for Jesus to come back to the earth and to set up his kingdom. The petition does not read, as often thought, thy kingdom spread. The kingdom envisaged by Daniel comes into power only after the defeat of the Antichrist, whose rule proceeds for, quote, a time, times, and half a time. Daniel 7, verse 25, and Revelation 13, verse 5. During that period, the saints will have been worn out and overcome by the tyrannical oppression of the anti-Christian system. Daniel 7, verses 21 and 25. It is only after the beast, quote, is destroyed and his body given to the burning fire and his dominion taken away and annihilated forever, Daniel 7, verses 11 and 26. It is only after that time that rulership passes into the hands of the saints. Such exactly is the scheme laid out in Revelation 19 and 20. The beast is seized and thrown to the lake of fire, Revelation 19, verse 20, whereupon the millennial reign begins to propose that the thousand-year reign precedes the destruction of the beast in fire and the complete removal of Satan, which have obviously not yet happened, to say that they have happened is a major disruption of the divine plan. The joint reign of Christ and the Church, present or future. Our thesis must be carefully checked against the New Testament evidence. Where is the joint rule of Christ and the faithful placed? Matthew has recorded words of Jesus which provide an answer. The saints take up their royal office with Christ when he comes back. I quote, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. In the new age, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you also will sit on thrones administering the twelve tribes of Israel. Those are quotations from Matthew 25, verse 31, and Matthew 19, verse 28. The kingdom is a gift to the disciples. Quote, I appoint you to a kingdom as my Father appointed me to a kingdom so that you may eat and drink in my kingdom and sit on thrones governing the twelve tribes of Israel. That's in Luke chapter 22, verses 28 to 30. In the parable of the nobleman, who is Christ, 
the kingdom is likewise placed at the return of the Messiah when he destroys his enemies and puts his servants in charge of urban populations. I quote, When he returned, having received the kingdom, the nobleman said, Bring hither my enemies who do not wish me to reign over them and slay them before me. And to the disciples, Jesus said, Have authority over ten cities. You'll find that in Luke chapter 19, verses 15, 17, and 27. Jesus clearly did not think that the kingdom had come, nor that his disciples were in it. I quote, I will no more drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. I shall never again eat the bread of the Lord's Supper until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 22, verses 16 and 18. Jesus told the disciples to expect the kingdom to arrive when he returned. Until then, he and they would be, quote, waiting until his enemies are put under his feet. Hebrews 10, verse 13. Luke tells us decisively that the kingdom will coincide with his spectacular return. I quote, When you see all these calamities preceding the second coming, when you see these happening, know that the kingdom of God is near or about to come, as the Good News Bible translates there. You'll find that in Luke chapter 21, verse 31. Another quotation, Remember me, said the thief, when you come to establish your kingdom. To which Jesus replied, You will indeed be with me in paradise. Luke 23, verse 43. The kingdom is equated with the coming paradise. The tendency to place the messianic kingdom in the present. While maintaining that the saints had been transferred into the kingdom of the Son, in the sense that possession of the Spirit guaranteed them a future inheritance, Paul nevertheless corrected the false notion held by some of the Corinthians that the saints are already reigning now. Writing first in a tone of irony and then expressing his longing for the future joint rule of Christ and the saints, Paul said, quote, You have become kings without us. Would to God that you were reigning so that we might be reigning with you. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 8. Paul was indignant that the Corinthians had forgotten one of the first principles of the faith, the believer's prospect of reigning with Christ in the future. Do you not know that the saints are going to manage the world? If the world is to come under your jurisdiction, are you incompetent to adjudicate upon trifles? Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 2 is translated by Moffat. By contrast, quote, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 and 9. The one statement interprets the other. Inheriting the kingdom is defined as, quote, managing the world. We have here an illuminating explanation of the significance of what Jesus and Paul meant by, quote, inheriting the kingdom. It points to a time when the world comes under the jurisdiction of the saints. Such a political notion may well come as a shock, but it is precisely what we would expect from everything we've read about the kingdom in its Hebrew setting. There was no question of the world being under Paul's jurisdiction when he wrote to the Corinthians. He had specifically said that his job in this present time was to administer only those inside the church. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 12. And that as an apostle, the world considered him to be the scum of the earth. See 1 Corinthians 4 verses 9 to 13. But the time was coming when, as a well-known Christian hymn in the apostolic church reminded believers if we suffer with him now, we shall rule as kings with him then. That's from 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. I note this too, that in Colossians 1, verse 13, and Colossians 3, verse 24, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, the inheritance of the kingdom must lie in the future at the resurrection. The angelic chorus summed up the entire plan of salvation with a song of praise to Jesus, celebrating the fact that the church of all nations, quote, shall reign as kings on the earth. Revelation 5 verse 10. The New Jerusalem Bible makes the text more clear. Quote, you have made them, the believers, a line of priests and kings for God to rule the world. No wonder then that Jesus, as claimant to the throne of the royal house of David, was seen as a subversive in the Roman Empire. Christianity is indeed a political threat to present world systems. In the same book of Revelation, Jesus specifically promises the believer a place in the future kingdom. Quote, I will give him authority over the nations which I myself have been given by my Father to rule. Revelation 2 verse 26, citing the Messianic Psalm 2. Another quotation, I will grant him, the believer, to sit with me in my throne as I sat with my father in his throne. Revelation 3, verse 21. The two thrones must be carefully distinguished. Christ is not now sitting on his own throne. In fact, in Acts 1, verses 6 and 7, a careful distinction is made between the coming of the restored kingdom as distinct from the ascension of Jesus. It is confusing to read Acts 2, verses 31 to 33, 
in a way which contradicts the scheme of Acts 1, verses 6 and 7. The resurrection and the ascension of Jesus advance the messianic program, but they do not complete it. Jesus' ascension guarantees his future enthronement in the kingdom. Jesus will, of course, rule the world when he begins to reign on the earth at his second coming, as predicted by Psalm 2. The promises of rulership with Jesus are for those who, quote, hold fast until he comes. Hold fast until I come. To those who prove victorious and keep working for me until the end, I will give authority over the pagans. You'll find that in Revelation chapter 2, verses 25 and 26. This text shows clearly that rulership is not promised for the present, but for the time subsequent to the future coming of Jesus, and as a reward for faithful service in the present life. It is at the last trumpet that, quote, the kingdoms of this world will have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he shall reign forever. That's a quotation from Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. At this future moment, the heavenly elders say, quote, We give thanks, O Lord God, the ruler of all, who are and was, because you've exerted your power, your great power, and you have become king. The time for the dead to be judged has come. That's from Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 to 18. When is that time? At the last trumpet. The last trumpet signals the resurrection of the faithful dead. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 23 and 52. Exactly the same scheme reappears in Revelation 19, where a future beginning of the reign of the Messiah is described. I quote, Hallelujah! Because our God, the Lord Omnipotent, has begun his reign, for the marriage day of the Lamb has come. Revelation 19, verses 6 and 7. Jesus is the, quote, man-child destined to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Revelation 20, verse 5. He will shepherd them with a staff of iron. Revelation 19, verse 15. These passages show that Psalm 2 has not been abandoned or, so to speak, spiritualized. Until the great moment for the establishment of the kingdom arrives, Jesus is to remain in heaven. I quote, Heaven must retain Jesus until the time comes for the restoration of all things about which all the prophets spoke. Acts 3, verse 21. Jesus is therefore, quote, waiting from that time onwards until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Hebrews 10, verse 13. The point of time from which Jesus waits is stated a verse earlier. From the time of the ascension, 
Jesus has been temporarily absent. Hebrews 10 verse 12. And that period of anticipation will come to an end when he returns to inaugurate the kingdom worldwide. With all this plain evidence before us, we come finally to the disputed millennial passage in Revelation 20. Here we are told that the saints, quote, came to life and began to reign with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. They shall reign with Christ for a thousand years. Revelation 20, verses 4 to 6. We have cited some 20 passages from the Old and New Testaments which describe the joint reign of Christ and the saints. In every case, the reign is placed after the second coming. It begins with the return of Christ. In Revelation 20, we arrive at the long-awaited fulfillment of the expected kingdom. To set this passage at variance with the 20 other passages by claiming that it is a reign already in progress, before the second coming is to break the first principle of sound interpretation. Our passage describes, as do its parallels throughout the Bible, a reign or kingdom following the resurrection of the martyred ones. I note that the martyrs are singled out for special notice. This should not be taken to exclude all true believers like John, the Apostle, and many others who were not martyred. To speak in these texts of a present rule of God in the heart or the church is to refuse simple information about the future kingdom of God. All the texts in the New Testament, without exception, which speak of the Christians ruling as kings, do so with the verbs in the future tense, and note that in Revelation 5 verse 10, there's a variant in the present tense. But even this may be a futuristic present. They are to reign. They will reign. Romans 5.17 points also to a future messianic reign for the saints. The word life being a synonym for the kingdom of God. Matthew 19 verses 17 and 24. Paul used this coded language to avoid political offense. The vocabulary of messianic salvation was well known to his converts in whom he invested so much teaching. No text speaks of the inheritance of the believers as a present fact. Flesh and blood indeed cannot inherit the kingdom of God and we read that in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Amillennialism, a dislocation of the biblical scheme. There are a number of other reasons why the millennial reign of Christ and his saints in Revelation must lie in the future. Firstly, the reign of Christ and the saints in Revelation 20 follows the events of the return of Christ given in chapter 19. In Revelation 19, verse 11, the words, And I saw, introduce a sequence of events, linked at verse 17 with, And I saw, and verse 19, And I saw, 
with the complete overthrow of the beast and the false prophet, verse 20, and the destruction of the remainder of those who oppose Christ, in verse 21. In Revelation 20, verse 1, again, and I saw, continues the sequence and deals with the complete removal from the world scene of the ultimate enemy, Satan himself. Following that event comes the next stage of the drama, and I saw thrones, and they sat upon them. Revelation 20, verse 4. Secondly, the reign of the saints with Christ depends on a resurrection. Revelation 20, verse 5. The non-resurrection, Greek word is anastasis, occurs some 40 times in the New Testament. In every case, apart from a very special use in Luke 2.24, it refers to a real resurrection of dead people to life, not a, quote, resurrection from the life of sin to life as a Christian, as our millennialism has to argue. It would be both unnatural and inconsistent to think of anything but the real resurrection of the dead in Revelation 20, verse 4. Thirdly, John described a real resurrection and not a figurative one by saying that the occupants of the thrones came to life after being beheaded. The core of the millennial passage reads, quote, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded and they came to life. This is the first resurrection. People are not beheaded, of course, at conversion, but they may die as martyrs. The, quote, coming to life of those who had been beheaded cannot by any stretch of the imagination describe conversion. Yet our millennialism has to deal with these words in this extraordinary way in order to avoid a literal resurrection. Fourthly, in Revelation 20, verse 3, Satan is bound, quote, so that he can no longer deceive the nations. Earlier in the same book, John described Satan as, quote, the one now deceiving the whole world. Revelation 12, verse 9. Here in Revelation 20, verse 3, Satan is bound and prevented from, quote, deceiving the nations any longer. It is beyond question that Satan cannot at the same time be deceiving the whole world and, quote, deceiving the nations no longer. Yet the whole so-called amillennial school is committed to that contradiction. Amillennialism teaches that the period of time in which Satan, quote, no longer deceives the nations, note the plural, the nations, not the church, our mills say that this is the same as the period in which he is now deceiving the whole world. It would be hard to think of a more unsatisfactory method of reading the Bible. Our millennialists, we fear, are driven to these extremes by their dislike of the idea of a messianic kingdom of God ruled by Christ and the saints. Fifthly, in Revelation 12, verses 12 and 13, the devil is thrown down from heaven into the earth. This, as all agree, is at a time prior 
to the second coming. However, in Revelation 20, verses 1 and 2, Satan is banished entirely from the earth and sent to the abyss. This banishment into the abyss, which coincides with the beginning of the millennial reign, must lie in the future. Satan cannot be both confined to the earth and banished from the earth into the abyss at the same time. Sixthly, Satan is represented as extremely active and powerful in the present evil age. Galatians 1 verse 4. John describes Satan as now exercising power over the whole world. I quote, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 1 John 5 verse 19. In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, we find that Satan, as quote, the god of this age, is very active. To grasp the New Testament view of the present activity of Satan, the following passages should be examined. Luke 22, verse 3, Acts 5, verse 3, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, Ephesians 2, verse 2, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 18, 2 Timothy 2, verse 26. 1 Peter 5, verse 18 reads, Your enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Yet, in our passage in Revelation 20, we have a description of the total cessation of the influence of Satan over the nations. He is removed from the scene, banished and sealed in the abyss. We urge our readers to abandon a view which makes Satan's present deceptive activity over the whole world compatible with a time when he is bound and unable any longer to deceive the nations. Revelation 20, verse 3. Seventhly, it is evident from Revelation 20, verse 10, that Satan is finally cast into the lake of fire after the thousand years, the millennium, plus a little season. Thus, a thousand years separates his binding and sealing in the abyss, in Revelation 20, verse 3, from his casting into the lake of fire, it is equally clear that the beast and the false prophet are already in the lake of fire when Satan joins them a thousand years later. Revelation 20, verse 10. In John's vision, a thousand years separates the casting of the beast into the lake of fire and Satan's arrival there. If, as the millennial school holds, the thousand years began at the crucifixion, or the conversion of the individual believer. Opinions vary on that point. What is the meaning of the casting of the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire a thousand years earlier than that time? What John obviously describes is the ruin of the beast and false prophet at the second coming. Satan's banishment to the abyss at the same time and his casting into the lake of fire to join the beast and false prophet a thousand years later, the thousand-year reign thus follows the second coming, which is premillennialism, a recognition of the future messianic kingdom. Eighth point. Our millennialists sometimes argue that the present freedom of Satan, assuming the premill scheme, 
that he has not yet been bound, contradicts the effects of the crucifixion. They admit, however, that Satan must be let free for a little season. Revelation 20, verse 3. This period of freedom would equally contradict the effects of the cross. The biblical facts are that Satan has already been defeated, but his sentence is put into effect when his authority as God of this age is finally removed by banishment, first into the abyss and subsequently by being cast into the lake of fire, a two-stage punishment. The ninth point, Satan cannot possibly already be, quote, deceiving the nations no longer, as our millennialism has to say. In Revelation 19, verse 15, Christ at his coming strikes the nations precisely because they have been so disastrously deceived by Satan into opposing the Messiah at his arrival. A tenth point. Nearly all agree that, quote, the rest of the dead, as to say those not included in the first resurrection, came to life literally at the close of the thousand years. As we read in Revelation 20, verse 5, and verse 12. Yet our millennialists deny that the coming to life of those in the first resurrection is a literal resurrection. The same Greek word describes the resurrection of both groups, and the same words, came to life, occur in two consecutive sentences. Henry Alford's celebrated protest against the inconsistency of this reading of the passage deserves to be heard again. I quote, I cannot consent to distort the words of Revelation 20 from their plain sense and chronological place in the prophecy. Those who lived next to the apostles and the whole church for 300 years understood them in the plain literal sense. As regards the text itself, no legitimate treatment of it will extort what is known as the spiritual or amillennial interpretation now in fashion. If in a passage where two resurrections are mentioned, where certain, quote, souls lived at the first and the rest of the dead, quote, lived only at the end of a specified period after the first, if in such a passage the first resurrection may be understood to mean, quote, spiritual, rising with the Christ, while the second means literal rising from the grave, then there is an end of all significance in language and scripture is wiped out as a definite testimony to anything. That's from Henry Alford's Greek New Testament. The failure to see in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6, a future reign of Christ with his saints involves an extraordinary feat by which the plain meaning of words and context are thrown aside in order to sustain a theory which did not appear in the church until 300 years after the apostles. As K. L. Schmidt observed, quote, the man who refuses to find clear teaching about a future millennium in Revelation 20 approaches the text with preconceived ideas and gains from it neither the exact sense, nor the value. 
That's from Carl Schmidt's book, Le Problème du Christianisme Primitif, written in 1938. George Ladd points to a whole tradition of anti-Messianic reading of the Bible when he writes, and I quote, The first anti-millenarians disparaged the natural interpretation of Revelation 20, not for exegetical reasons, because they thought the book did not teach a millennium, but because they did not like millennial doctrine. That's from George Ladd's book, Crucial Questions About the Kingdom of God, in 1952. Opposition to the Jewishness of Jesus' gospel about the kingdom is explicit when commentators confront a straightforward, and in this case, a climactic, statement about the resolution of the world's ills when the Christ comes back to reign. Augustine and the Millennium of Revelation 20. The proclamation of the gospel demands a decision about the kingdom of God and its king before the arrival of the great and terrible day of the Lord. For those who respond to the challenge of the kingdom there is the hope of life in the new world. Meanwhile, quote, through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom, as we read in Acts chapter 14, verse 22. The millennial kingdom, so concisely described in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6, is the first stage of the divine rule to be executed by the Messiah. This period of world history follows the second coming, and is preceded by the first resurrection, which permits the faithful who have died to take part in the kingdom. Disunity on this central element of the plan is attributable again to the influx of an alien philosophy working to confuse the Hebrew messianic basis of the gospel. The original intention of John's millennial vision is quite clear, but leading theologians deemed it unfit for inclusion in their system. The result was the decision to divert the meaning of the text, getting rid of its offensive messianism. Christ is described as reigning with the martyrs for a thousand years. The interpretation of this statement has caused endless controversy. Since the age of Augustine, an effort has been made to allegorize the statements of Revelation and apply them to the history of the Church. According to Augustine, the thousand years is not to be construed literally, but represents the whole history of the Church from the Incarnation to the final conflict. The reign of the saints is a prophecy of the domination of the world by the church. The first resurrection is metaphorical and simply refers to the spiritual resurrection, so-called, of the believer in Christ. But, says the Peake's commentary, exegesis of this kind is dishonest trifling. To put such an interpretation on the phrase First resurrection is simply playing with terms. That's from Peake's commentary on the Bible. 
Augustine's denial of the coming millennial reign of Christ and the saints on earth was adopted as official doctrine by the mainstream church for 12 centuries. It dominated theological understanding until the 17th century. Augustine's amillennialism still grips the minds of many and distorts not only the book of Revelation, but the gospel of the kingdom. Augustine promoted on a vast scale the notion that the faithful are now reigning in heaven, a concept which undermines the Bible and could have made no headway if the biblical view of death as sleep had been retained. The departure of the dead to heaven at death was, quote, the thin edge of the wedge which facilitated the dismantling of the divine drama leading to a restored earth. Augustine's immensely popular, quote, reinterpretation draws a veil over the messianic hopes of the prophets. In view of these facts, the title of this book will, we trust, be considered fair criticism and a challenge to return to the biblical hope. Unfortunately, the critics who rightly understand that John had in mind a millennial messianic kingdom of the future come no nearer than many evangelicals to believing the prediction of the coming reign of Jesus and the saints. Scholarship dismisses the whole millennial vision as a piece of, quote, Jewish speculation foisted upon Christianity. It is common practice for the critics to dismiss as Jewish any part of the Christian revelation found to be unpalatable to the minds of those unsympathetic to the spirit of Hebrew prophecy. A most extraordinary criterion for judging which parts of the recorded teaching of Jesus are genuinely his words has contributed to the dismissal of the Jewish Jesus. Some scholars have maintained that teaching which parallels Jewish ideas must not and cannot have originated with Jesus. But this is to set out with the intention of not finding a Jewish Jesus. Traditional Christianity displays its anti-Messianic bias most obviously when it attempts to dismantle the plainest testimonies to the triumph of messianic government over the world consequent upon the arrival of Jesus in power. The description of souls, not of course immortal souls, but simply those persons who, the description of souls, those persons who had been beheaded, coming to life, and beginning to reign with the Messiah, as in Revelation 20, verse 4, can mean only one thing. Literally dead persons, souls, of course, are not disembodied souls, simply mean those who, those who came to life in that passage can mean only one thing. Literally dead persons, some had been decapitated, are seen being resurrected literally. To avoid this glorious vision of the future resurrection of the saints is to commit a considerable violence on Scripture. Commentators of the first rank have noted how terribly unfair are the attempts to avoid millennialism in the vision 
which claims Jesus as its author. I quote, what Augustine was to stigmatize as, quote, the ridiculous fancies of millenarianism, an initial selective resurrection inaugurating the thousand years earthly rule of Christ and his saints, followed by a second general resurrection and judgment, this so-called ridiculous fancy gradually faded from the Christian imagination during the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries. Augustine exerted his immense authority against the millenarianists, arguing not that the expectation expressed in the revelation to John were mistaken, but that the passage in question does not mean what it says. It is interesting to watch him at work reinterpreting scriptural passages whose plain meaning he rejects. In this case, he offers a Boltman-like demythologization of the, quote, first resurrection consisting in the rising to faith of those souls who believe in Jesus and are baptized in his name. The thousand years reign of the saints thus becomes the earthly life of the redeemed in the church during the present age. According to Augustine, the second and general resurrection, unlike the first, was to be a literal bodily event. That's from John Hicks' book, Death and Eternal Life, written in 1976. The influence of Augustine set in motion an entrenched anti-Messianic tendency in the church, which has persisted to our own times. There seems no good reason to reject plain language, unless, of course, faith in the promises of the Messiah's kingdom has failed. The marks of a falling away from original truth are clear, and the church has paid the penalty in division and loss of the central dynamic which the gospel of the kingdom, understood in its native Jewish environment, provides. The remark of Cranfield exposes the misunderstanding which plagues the church. Defection from the teaching of Jesus at the heart of his message surely must be cause for immediate concern. I quote, it should be plain that the identification of the kingdom of God with the church made by Augustine, which has become deeply rooted in Christian thinking, is not true to the teaching of Jesus. That's in the Gospel according to St. Mark, written in 1972. Belief in the future kingdom, the heart of the Gospel of the kingdom. We saw at the beginning of our study that the kingdom or reign of God is the central message of Christianity. The facts offered to converts in order to believe the Gospel include not only the death of Christ to atone for our sins and his resurrection, but also the information about the kingdom of God, which Jesus proclaimed and demonstrated in advance of its worldwide inauguration at his second coming. The present time is the time of preparation for the kingdom, which is to be the world rule of Messiah and his saints in the coming age. The words of Jesus in Luke 16, verse 16, are quite clear. 
I quote, from the time of John the Baptist, the gospel of the kingdom is preached. Jesus did not say, quote, from the time of John, the kingdom has been here. Truly, we may say that the kingdom is present in a different sense, wherever the message is being proclaimed and the power of God is active. It is present when its powers are brought to bear on the demonic world. Matthew 12, verse 28. It is not, however, present as the worldwide messianic kingdom predicted by the prophets until Jesus returns to rule on earth. A great deal of argument about the presence and the future of the kingdom could be laid to rest if protagonists would agree that the kingdom cannot be both present and future in the same sense. As Caird said, the debate between those who hold that Jesus declared the kingdom of God to have arrived and those who hold that he declared it to be imminent is reducible to its simplest terms when we recognize that the parties to the debate have differently identified the referent. If Jesus was referring to the final vindication of God's purposes in the reign of justice and peace, where the righteous are to banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Matthew 8, verse 11, Luke 13, verses 28 and 29, it is mere nonsense even to suggest that this was present on earth when Caiaphas was high priest and Pilate governor of Judea. On the other hand, if Jesus is referring to the redemptive sovereignty of God let loose into the world for the destruction of Satan and all his works, as in Matthew 12, verse 29, Luke 11, verse 20, it makes nonsense of the whole record of his ministry to argue that for him this lay still in the future. That's a quotation from C.B. Caird, The Language and Imagery of the Bible, written in 1980. The believer is invited by the gospel to prepare by a life of submission to the Lord for servant rulership with Christ in a restored earth in which a new civilization will be built. This hope gives Christianity its essential dynamic. The messianic program will include the abolition of international warfare. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. True worship of the one God through Jesus will be taught worldwide. The earth will be, quote, filled with the knowledge of God. Isaiah 11, verse 9. A system of perfect justice will operate for all mankind. Quote, when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants will learn justice. Isaiah 26, verse 9. The kingdom of God for which we pray, thy kingdom come, is a restoration of the divine government in a perfected form. That these are the facts of the biblical revelation is accepted by many scholars and commentators. They do not, however, treat them as more than, quote, a Jewish dream. Historians have dismissed them as a fantasy. They are not persuaded that the dream will be realized. 
Yet the biblical gospel is pledged to a promise of future peace on earth. The truth of divine revelation is at stake. Commentators who treat the Bible as an inspired record avoid belief in the gospel of the kingdom by a different route. Their natural antipathy to the Hebrew thought world of the Bible has led to a development of a system of, quote, interpretation by which the plain meaning of words, for example in Revelation 20, can be sidestepped. In this way, the entire import of Hebrew prophecy, which looks forward to the restoration of Israel and universal peace on earth under the reign of the coming Messiah and the Church, is negated. The reality of the Christian future, especially the millennial reign, and even sometimes the whole idea of the second coming, is simply collapsed, and hope has little definable meaning. In proclaiming the kingdom of God, the Church offers not only salvation and the promise of immortality to the individual, but the hope of a world at peace under the coming government of the Messiah, who has proved himself fit to rule where Adam and mankind have failed. The cataclysmic events of the future will vindicate the divine plan to restore to the earth what has been lost through the rebellion instigated by the devil. The recovery of sane and sound government will bring God's intention for the human race to its logical conclusion. The earth and its inhabitants must learn the way to justice, and this cannot happen while Satan remains in office as, quote, the prince of the power of the atmosphere, or the ruler who governs the air. These are verses found in Ephesians 2, verse 2, where the New International Version has the ruler of the kingdom of the air. If Eden is not restored, it would appear that the devil will have triumphed. But, as someone has said, the book of Revelation says that we, the Christians, win, and specifically by reigning with Jesus on the earth. Judgment. There are other areas of misunderstanding in which traditional thinking must yield to the original intentions of the New Testament writers if the biblical teaching about Jesus as the Messiah is to be recaptured. One concerns the notion of judgment, the other the meaning of the term Word of God. Our creeds mislead us when they teach us to believe that Jesus is coming back only to, quote, judge. Our Western concept of judgment as being primarily to do with sentence and punishment hides from us the Hebrew meaning of judgment. For the biblical writers, judgment implies a much wider activity. It means administration, the exercise of every aspect of government. That is to be the function of the Messiah and his elect. The essence of the divine message is that, quote, God has appointed a day in which he will administer the world with justice. Acts 17, verse 31. This is the heart 
of biblical messianism, which is only a synonym for Christianity. When Paul proclaimed a future, quote, judgment to the Athenians, he was citing a messianic psalm in which the hope of God coming to, quote, rule the world was celebrated. I quote, the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord because he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people's in his faithfulness. That's a quotation from Psalm 96, verses 12 and 13. The Good News Bible catches the flavor of these verses. Quote, when the Lord comes to rule the earth, he will rule the peoples of the world with justice and fairness. The theme is repeated often in the Hebrew Bible and reinforces the vision of Messiah's benevolent rule. Quote, may the king judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. May he come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish. May he also rule from sea to sea. That's a quotation from Psalm 72, verses 2 to 8. Such is the beautiful picture of the Messiah's administration to which the faithful are invited as assistants. Quote, don't you realize that the saints are going to administer the world? Paul asked this in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2. The, quote, judges of the book of Judges were administrators and governors, and judging is the function of a leader and a king, as we find in Psalm 2, verse 10. The phrase, this generation, in the course of his elaborate discourse on events to be expected close to the end of the present age, as the prelude to the age to come of the kingdom, Jesus made a startling statement that, quote, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That's in Matthew 24, verse 34, and Mark 13, verse 30. The, quote, all things in question included his second coming in glory, described in the immediately preceding verses. In the Western world, this generation might suggest a period extending over the lifetime of one individual, although even then one might ask whether it is the younger or the older generation that's meant. Jesus, however, cannot possibly have indicated a precise period of 40 or 70 years. To have done so would be to contradict his own later statement that the disciples were not to know the, quote, times and seasons relative to the coming of the kingdom. Acts 1 verse 7. Generation, that word, does not mean a fixed period of 40 years, but a block of humanity characterized by its evil tendencies, something like this evil brood, or, quote, this perverse society organized in opposition to God. In Luke 16, verse 8, Jesus observed that the, quote, sons of this age 
i.e. members of the present human society, are more shrewd in relation to their own generation than the sons of light, the Christians as destined for the kingdom. The word generation there is rendered kind, as in Luke 16, verse 8, the New American Standard Version, showing its meaning to be, quote, a group with common characteristics. This meaning of the word goes back to the Hebrew Bible. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, the word generation refers to the whole people of Israel during the entire period of their national opposition to God's direction. They are, quote, a perverse and crooked generation. You find that same group are called children in whom there is no faith. Deuteronomy 32, verse 20. Similarly, in the Proverbs, Scripture speaks of a generation who curses their father and a generation who are pure in their own eyes. The word is appropriately rendered kind of person, pointing to a group identified by a common characteristic. So also the Bible speaks positively of, quote, the generation of the righteous in Psalm 14, verse 5, and of, quote, the generation to come, equivalent to, quote, a people who will be created, Psalm 102, verse 18. So also in the Psalms of Solomon, references made to, quote, the coming generation, also called a good generation living in the fear of the Lord. That's from Psalms of Solomon 18, verses 6 and 9. Generation, then, means a social group united by common traits of character, good or bad. Jesus, therefore, speaking in an eschatological context of, quote, this generation, contrasted the present evil society with the coming society of the kingdom. The same distinction is implied in Mark, chapter 8, verse 38, where he contrasts, quote, this adulterous and sinful generation with the time when, quote, the Son of Man comes in the glory of his Father. As a leading New Testament scholar says, quote, probably generation in Mark 8.38 is best taken in the sense of age or period of time, which is the primary meaning of the Hebrew word dor. That information is from C.E.B. Cranfield, the Gospel according to St. Mark. This word then regularly rendered by generation in the Greek of the Septuagint, and we read also that this generation will not pass until all the cataclysmic events described by Jesus have happened, and this means the present swiftly transient period of the world's history which is leading up to the day of judgment and the new age. That's a quotation from the word generation found in the dictionary of the apostolic church. Jesus made no chronological prediction about the time of his arrival to inaugurate the kingdom. Contrary to some of his followers later who sometimes bring the faith in disrepute by asserting dogmatically that he will arrive on a certain date.
I note that the current theory which maintains that Jesus actually returned to establish the kingdom in AD 70, known as ultra-preterism, that this view undermines the entire New Testament hope. Our point is confirmed in an excellent article by Neil Nelson, who writes, quote, This generation, in Matthew 24, verse 34, refers to a kind of people characterized by Matthew as unbelieving and headed towards eschatological judgment. In the context of the discourse, it refers to that type of consummately evil and unbelieving people who deceive and persecute the disciples of Christ until the time of the parousia or second coming, when the true followers of Jesus are vindicated and, quote, this generation passes away in judgment. Any interpretation of Iyenea Afti, this generation that implies that disciples in Jesus or the evangelist time or at any time can use the events of Matthew 24, 4-28 to calculate and expect Jesus' return within the 30-40 to 40 year period, allowing themselves time to prepare in the future for this coming, all of that seems to run counter to the whole purpose and emphasis of the discourse in Matthew 24. All of that information is from Neil D. Nelson in his article, This Generation, in Matthew 24, verse 34, written in 1996. Justification by faith. There's a vagueness in much contemporary religion which all too easily borrows the name of Jesus without understanding the necessity of following his teaching. What a change might come over churches if the following New Testament texts were repeated often. I quote, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom. Matthew 5, verse 20. And from Paul, the preacher of grace, along with all New Testament Christians, of course, I quote, Not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the Lord will be justified. That's in Romans 2, verse 13. Both Jesus and Paul make obedience a condition of salvation, and Paul taught his converts to think of salvation as past, present, and future. Salvation is past in Ephesians 2, verse 8, present in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, and future in Romans 5, verses 9 and 10, and Romans 13, verse 11. While much contemporary preaching implies that a Christian is secure once he believes in the death of Christ, the New Testament insists on a continuing life of righteousness in the power of the risen Christ. There's no genuine Christianity without ongoing discipleship and growth. You'll find that in 2 Peter 1, verses 5 to 11. Justification for Paul is much more than simply forgiveness. It reinstates a person as a son of God and heir of the promise of a place in the land 
or kingdom. The pulpit commentary notes, and I quote, We must not restrict justification to deliverance from deserved penalty, but must attach it to the further idea of inheritance. As one writer has well remarked, quote, justification is applicable to something more than the discharge of an accused person without condemnation. As in our courts of law, there are civil as well as criminal cases, so it was in old time, and a large number of the passages adduced seem to refer to trials of the latter description, in which some question of property, right, or inheritance was under discussion between the two parties. The judge, by justifying one of the parties, decided that the property in question was to be regarded as his. Applying this aspect of the matter to the justification of man in the sight of God, we gather from Scripture that while, through sin, a man is to be regarded as having forfeited legal claims to any right of inheritance which God might have to bestow upon his creatures, so through justification he is restored to his high position and regarded as an heir of the world. That's from the pulpit commentary, citing Gerdelson and Gerdelson's book, Old Testament Synonyms. Justification, then, restores men and women to their position before the fall. They are then candidates for royal office in the coming kingdom and must dedicate themselves daily to making their calling and election, that's to say, selection to kingship, making that inheritance sure. 2 Peter 1 verse 10. Regeneration and the reception of seed. The loss of the gospel of the kingdom has affected evangelism at its core. Regeneration, or being born again, is seen throughout the New Testament as essential to salvation. In the words of Jesus to Nicodemus, quote, you must be born again in order to enter the kingdom. John 3, verses 5 to 8. To grasp what the Bible says about spiritual birth, it is necessary to encompass all the relevant data. A partial or selective approach will result in a defective understanding. The common tendency for evangelicals to rely on Paul, mostly in his letter to the Romans, makes it hard for many to see that Jesus is the original master teacher of regeneration. If Jesus is cited by evangelicals, it is mostly from John's Gospel only with disregard for the other three Gospels. It is well known that Jesus makes rebirth the indispensable condition of salvation. How then does this rebirth come about? In his classic conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus teaches that the agent of rebirth is the Spirit of God. Closely connected with the Spirit is water. John 3, verses 5 to 7. Perhaps a reference to baptism, which is mandated in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew 28. 
The apostles of Jesus include in their writing invaluable comments on the, quote, born-again process. James says that we are born again through the word of truth. James 1, verse 18. But just what is that word of truth? Peter gives a fuller account. He connects rebirth with hope. God has caused our rebirth into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an incorruptible inheritance, that's to say, of the coming kingdom. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. Christians are, quote, born again, not from corruptible seed, but incorruptible seed through the word of God, which abides forever. This is the word which was preached to you as the gospel. 1 Peter 1, verses 23 to 25. The essential ingredients of rebirth are clear. There's a word or gospel. There's a spirit. Rebirth launches us into a living hope in view of a future inheritance of the kingdom of God. And the whole process is traced to the action of the incorruptible seed. Without the seed, the process malfunctions. Seed, of course, is responsible for the creation of life, human, animal, and vegetable. This is no less true of the counterpart world of the spirit and immortality. But what is that, quote, word of truth, gospel, or seed, with which the potential convert must make contact? Seed causes the generation or creation of new life. So Paul writes, quote, If anyone is in Christ, that's to say a Christian, he's a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, he describes the same regenerating process elsewhere as, quote, the washing of rebirth and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Titus 3 verse 5. John speaks often in his letters about Christians being begotten by the Father. In 1 John 3 verse 9, he too refers to the essential seed of God which remains in the believer. He refers also to Jesus as one born or begotten by God. 1 John 5 verse 18. It is at this point that many attempted descriptions of rebirth break down. They omit to trace this essential Christian teaching to the master teacher himself. Jesus gave by far the fullest account of how the seed of rebirth or regeneration or conversion operates. For this foundational teaching about rebirth, the teaching on which the brief remarks of Peter, Paul, John, and James depend, is found in the parable of the sower, which we might call also the parable of the seed in Matthew 13, Mark 4, and Luke 8. The parable of the sower provides an exact definition of the vitalizing seed referred to by John and Peter. Jesus said, 
I quote, Whenever anyone hears the word about the kingdom and fails to understand it, the wicked one, the devil, snatches away what was sown in his heart. Matthew 13, verse 19. Others, Jesus said, receive the seed and retain it for a while, but fall away under the pressure of persecution. Still others receive the seed and retain it, but anxiety and other preoccupations choke the seed and it bears no fruit. The fourth category is successful. The group represented by the good soil receive the seed, quote, in an honest and good heart. Luke 8, verse 15, and bear fruit in varying degrees. See Matthew 13, 18 to 23. Mark and Luke report the same full account of how rebirth through the germ of the gospel occurs. Luke reports Jesus as saying that, quote, the seed is the word of God. Luke 8, verse 11. Compare with that James's quote, word of truth and Peter's word preached as gospel. The first gospel, Matthew, gives us the full definition of that word. It is the word or gospel about the kingdom. Satan, mounting his attack on the salvation process, deliberately tries to frustrate God's creative sowing activity. The devil, quote, comes and takes away the word of the kingdom, Matthew 13, 19, from their hearts or minds, so that they cannot believe it and be saved. That's Luke 8, verse 12. This detailed instruction from the lips of Jesus is essential to our grasp of the doctrine of regeneration. Salvation, according to Jesus, begins when the creative gospel or word of the kingdom or the truth lodges in the mind of the listener and when the message is given an intelligent reception. That word must reside as the vital, energizing seed in the believer and grow until he is finally immortalized in the resurrection when Jesus comes back. You'll find this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, and verses 50 to 52. Also in Revelation 11, verses 15 to 18, and so on. Mark's account of Jesus' teaching on rebirth through seed emphasizes an important aspect of salvation. Jesus says, To you who receive the gospel with intelligence, the mystery of the kingdom has been made known, but to those outside everything comes in parables, so that seeing they may see, yet not understand, and hearing they may hear, and yet not understand what they hear. If they did, they would be converted and their sins would be forgiven them. That's in Mark chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. It is remarkable that Jesus here makes intelligent reception of his kingdom message or gospel 
or word, the indispensable condition of conversion, repentance, and forgiveness. Blindness to the kingdom gospel of Jesus obstructs repentance, conversion, and rebirth. Can the gospel then be successfully preached if the kingdom of God is not presented to the potential convert? Can Christ be accepted apart from Christ's own saving gospel, the gospel of the kingdom? I quote, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me possesses the life of the age to come. That's in John 5, verse 24. Once the kingdom message of Jesus comes to the listener, he makes a choice to receive it or not. Without understanding it, he cannot receive it. Without receiving it, he cannot be forgiven. Such are the steps required for rebirth into the family of God. Quote, Faith indeed comes by hearing and hearing from Messiah's message. That's Romans 10, verse 17. Compare with that John 5, verse 24. It's important to observe that Jesus was not at this stage of his ministry speaking of the other great factor in salvation, belief in his atoning death and his resurrection. These great teachings were later incorporated into the salvation program Jesus first mentions his death only in Matthew 16, verse 21, Mark 8, verse 31, and Luke 9, verse 22. The kingdom, or seed, or gospel, remains throughout the New Testament the most fundamental element for salvation. Jesus expects his gospel of the kingdom to be spread to all nations until his return at the end of the age. We find that in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, and compare with that Matthew 24, verse 14, which speaks of the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. Paul consequently preached it everywhere, preached the kingdom, that is, everywhere. Acts 20, verse 25, 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. To be born again, or born of the Spirit, born again through the Word, the Word of Truth, the Gospel, or to be a new creation, means therefore to receive the saving seed of immortality sown by Jesus and the Apostles by means of their Gospel about the Kingdom of God. Paul was no stranger to the teaching of Jesus. He stated the same great truth about rebirth, in other words. Here it is. Quote, Abraham had two sons, the one Ishmael by a slave girl, the other Isaac by a free woman. The child of the slave girl was born according to the flesh. Compare with that Jesus' words, he who is born of the flesh, in John 3, 6. And the other, the son of the free woman, was born from the promise. Now we brothers, like Isaac, are children born from the promise. But as then, he who was born from the flesh 
persecuted the Son who was born of the Spirit. So it is now. You'll find that in Galatians 4, verses 22 to 29. To be, quote, born of the Spirit is to be a child of the free woman, the Jerusalem above, namely the Jerusalem destined to appear on earth when Jesus comes to establish the kingdom in Jerusalem. See, for that fact, Psalm 87, verse 5, in the Septuagint Greek version, cited by Paul in Galatians 4, verse 26. Thus it is that all who are born of the Spirit are children of the kingdom. The promise on which salvation is based is in fact the promise of the kingdom. Christians are heirs of the kingdom which God has promised to those who love him. James 2 verse 5. Abraham received as gospel, Galatians 3 verse 8, the same promise of the kingdom. Quote, the promise to Abraham and his seed that he would be heir of the world. Romans 4 verse 13. So the Spirit is transmitted in the promise presented in the Gospel. Paul actually calls the Spirit the, quote, Holy Spirit of the promise, Ephesians 1 verse 13. I note that we should see also the King James Version there and Henry Alford's comment in his Greek New Testament. Rebirth under the stimulus of the gospel of the kingdom is the key to God's creative activity. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. His new creation through the preaching of Jesus as the messenger of the covenant as well as through his death and resurrection. Rebirth, that is being, quote, born again, means hearing understanding and receiving the gospel preaching of Jesus himself. Note the New American Standard Version's correct translation of Romans 10 verse 14. Quote, How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard preaching? Salvation then depends on hearing Jesus preach, not just hearing about Jesus, as is misleadingly translated in the NIV there. Rebirth, being born again, means hearing, understanding, and receiving the gospel preaching of Jesus himself as the apostle of Christianity, Hebrews 3 verse 1, and the model evangelists, Hebrews 2 verse 3. A word in the Bible is the instrument of God's creative energy and action. It was by a word that God said, let there be light. It is by the word of the truth, the gospel, that he illuminates our understanding, granting us light, which we are then commanded to take to others. Mark 4, verse 21 to 25. It is by the seed or word of the kingdom Matthew 13, 19, that God, through the Son, sets in motion the creation of immortal persons through the implanting of the divine nature and mind. 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, James 1, 
verse 21. No wonder then that the devil is enraged when that saving creative word and spirit are successfully conveyed to a willing receptive mind. The devil exerts every effort to snatch away the gospel or word of the kingdom so that we cannot, quote, receive it and be saved. Luke 8, verse 12. Luke has recorded for us a brilliant intelligence report from Jesus, whose mind was steeped in the spirit and insight of God, his Father. Jesus was fully aware of the mechanics of regeneration. Parallel to Jesus' connection of rebirth with spirit and water in John's Gospel are his famous statements about rebirth in the other Gospels. Quote, Truly I tell you, unless you are converted and become like little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever will not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. That's in Matthew 18, verse 3, and Mark 10, verse 15. Another quotation. Unless a man is born again, he cannot enter or see the kingdom of God. John 3, verses 3 and 5. A Christian is the product of the seed message of the kingdom, which makes him, quote, a son of the kingdom. Matthew 13, 38. Or, as Paul puts it, quote, a child of the promise. Galatians 4, verse 28. One born of the Spirit. Galatians 4, verse 29. Destined to receive the inheritance of the kingdom announced in the gospel of grace. See Titus 3, verse 7. The Christian doctrine of regeneration is grounded in the gospel as it came from the lips of Jesus himself. It is a gospel of hope for the future, not only the assurance of forgiveness in the present. Tracts offering the way to salvation urgently need to be rewritten to include knowledge of the saving seed of the kingdom gospel announced by Jesus and the apostles. The Word of God. The concern of the early Christians to convey the essential information about man's personal and collective rescue is obscured as long as we continue to read the, quote, Word of God as simply a synonym for the Bible as a whole. The scriptural term for the whole Bible is the Holy Writings, 2 Timothy 3.15, or the writings, Luke 24, verses 27 and 32. Jesus there described the canon of the Hebrew Bible as the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, Luke 24, verse 44. The order of the books was not the one known to us in the standard versions. The third division, the Psalms, or writings, consisted of Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. The expression, quote, Word of God should be understood to mean the message 
of God, or more fully, the message of the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, Acts 8, verse 12. It is to that very specific corpus of information that each individual must respond in order to ensure his personal rescue from death. In Acts 8, preaching the message as good news, Acts 8, 4, is equivalent to preaching Christ, Acts 8, 5. And both phrases are shorthand expressions for the more comprehensive definition of the gospel as centered on the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, found in Acts 8.12. Personal involvement in the message of the kingdom is never separate from a hope for the salvation of humanity at large and the establishment of peace on earth. The divine politics implied by the term kingdom of God have everything to do with the future of our planet and our world. To maintain otherwise is to negate the message of the prophets of Israel. The phrase word of God in the New Testament is the counterpart to God's original word which brought into being the heavens and the earth. Psalm 33 contains the classic passage describing the work of creation and the plan for the world. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. The quote word in the New Testament is the gospel message of the kingdom taught by Jesus as the creative agent of God to effect the new creation of immortals, begun now and completed at the return of Christ. The word or message is also rooted in the covenants made with Abraham, Israel, and David, and celebrated in Psalm 105. God has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. Then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, quote, To you, I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. That's a quotation from Psalm 105, verses 8 to 11. It was that word which David loved. Psalm 119, verse 97. On that bedrock foundation of God's faithfulness to the covenant, New Testament Christianity takes its stand. Psalm 105 goes on to speak of the patriarchs as, quote, messiahs or anointed ones, that's to say kings, Psalm 105, verse 15. The link between the patriarchs and the Christians is established when Paul describes his converts as 
anointed, as in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21. From cover to cover, the Bible reveals God to be a kingmaker, selecting by means of the invitation to kingship contained in his message, the leaders of the society to come. Hebrews 2, verse 5. Christians, then, are those for whom the present life is a time of preparation through trial and testing for royal office. The Abrahamic covenant has been well-named, quote, the theological blueprint for the redemptive history of the world, a redemptive history which the call of Abraham sets in train. That's a quotation from W.J. Dumbrell, The Covenant with Abraham, found in the Reformed Theological Review of 1982. On that blueprint, that Kingdom of God blueprint, expanded and clarified in 2 Samuel 7 and Daniel 7, the structure of New Testament Christianity is built. The removal of its base in the Hebrew Bible, understood in a concrete fashion, must result in the collapse of the message. To a widespread rejection of the vision of the prophets from Abraham to Malachi, we attribute the present fragmentation of Christians.